right, praise the Lord. I'm going to try to stay up here. I'm not, I feel weird standing up here talking, but uh, if I come down there, it's just because I don't like being up here. But uh, I enjoyed last night. I, uh, I think uh, Chris and I, I'm staying with the Larsons, appreciate them housing the entire dentist clan. Um, but we were probably up to almost 2 o'clock in the morning talking about uh, the testimonies last night. And I just so enjoyed that. A little intimidating because I don't feel like maybe what I have to say is as good as what they had to say. <clears throat> but nonetheless, um, appreciate everybody, Pastor Rod, Sister Kay, love you guys so much. Thank you for having us down. It's funny how we all started out in California, now we're all back this way. Um, we're, we're out in East Tennessee, um, a, quite a bit better than Oklahoma, but, um, but we're glad to come and be here with you. My whole family's with me today, and uh, they got to travel with us. It's been a long time since I've traveled and my family got to come with me, so I'm really excited about that, and uh, they endured the 13-hour drive down here, and uh, it was, uh, I'm glad to have them with me. It makes, always makes me feel good when I have my family with me, so uh, appreciate y'all. Uh, grab your Bibles this morning. We're going to jump around just a little bit, and uh, I, I feel like what the Lord has me sharing, I was telling Brother Chris this morning is that feel like it's a monumental task which I'm trying to accomplish this morning and the danger is is that I'll say a lot and not get anything said um, so I'm, I'm going to try to avoid that this morning um, and bear with me some of some of this will maybe seem a little theological in nature uh, hopefully I'll get to the part where I can give you some practical handles to apply this stuff uh, but we'll see how it goes if it's bad and you're a visitor it's no reflection on pastor. It's just me. Um, so, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Genesis. Let's go to Genesis. It, you're just going to keep ha, keep your Bibles handy this morning, uh, if you will. Um, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. Um, so, just, just bear with me. I, I want to talk a little bit this morning uh, about something that I've noticed and something that's really been on my heart a lot lately. And, and uh, it... I feel like it's important for us. And so let me just kind of frame this up for us. What we're going to be talking about this morning is, is reclaiming the narrative of the Bible. Reclaiming the narrative of the Bible. The Bible at best, stay in Genesis 1. If we look at the Bible, we know it's 66 books written over a couple of thousands of years. And, and so it's, it, it's different than any other book that's out there just in terms of literary content. But the Bible, if you look at it, is more of a mosaic than it is anything else. And some of you have seen mosaics where you have this big picture, and within this big picture, there's a lot of little pictures. And the little pictures are really cool. And the closer you get, the more little pictures you see. Um, and, you know, and then so now they have these mosaics where there's pictures inside of pictures inside of pictures. And so the, the closer you get, the more you start to see. The Bible is kind of like that. There's a, some amazing stories in here, and there's amazing concepts through all of it. But in general, if you'll back far enough out, you'll see that there's one conclusive picture. And, and all the little pictures are amazing, and they're all great, they're all part of it, and they make it what it is. But the big picture is probably what the most important thing is. And all the little pictures make the big picture. And, and I feel like kind of in our modern, current culture and where we're at, we've lost the big picture inside of all the little pictures. I mean, you could drive up and down if... When we moved to Tennessee, the, the, the first thing that we noticed is there's a church on every corner. And my son said, and two in between the corners. Um, and there's a lot of churches in you. We always like the first one. 
Anybody ever been to like the first Baptist church or the first Methodist church? And that's the very first one. Um, and uh, we were driving on our way here. We'd never, all the years I've been traveling, we'd ne- I'd never been in Arkansas, um, which as it turns out was not really a loss. Um, but we, we went through Arkansas and, and we're driving through North Little Rock. And there on the, the, I mean, right on the freeway is the j- most giant church I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, and it was the first Pentecostal church, the very first one. And I told my family, there it is, the very first one, the very first one. But, you know, we have all these different ideologies and, and beliefs in the church, and everybody's grasping to be have something different and something new and something this and that. And I think in all of that, and I'm not saying that maybe there's not some good things within that, but what's most important is the big narrative. And there is a narrative that I think that we've lost that I really feel like that we should be living from. So Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to bounce around just a little bit. Um, we're just going to read a couple verses from here. and then. But keep your, if you're one of those that want to look and make sure that everything I'm saying is in the Bible, just keep your fingers open there. Um, we're, we're going to start at uh, 26. And let me make sure that's where I want to start. Yeah, yeah. so I've got my uh, common English Bible. It might be a little different than what you have, but just you'll make it, I promise. Um, 26 says, then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, of, uh, all the earth and all the crawling things on the earth. Verse 27, God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them, male and female, God created them. So we're going to start there. Eventually, I want to try to get to the book of John. So we've got some territory to cover, about 39 books. No, I'm just kidding. Um, actually, more than 39. So anyway, let's pray this morning. Though. Lord, we love you. Thank you, God, so much for everything you do. God, I, I know you're with us this morning as we endeavor to open up your word. God, would you honor us, Lord, by giving us your truth and, and, and allowing us to see your heart, God, in all that we say and do this morning. And we will give you all the praise and glory for it. In Jesus' mighty name, everyone says Amen. All right, so reclaiming the narrative of God. So just kind of keep your, your, your Bible open to there. I want to start, and if you go back to the first verse, we have these, the, the opening narrative of the Bible says this. It, most, most translations have it this way. In the beginning, God. And, and I want to start our narrative there, and this is important. I know this might not seem like it's important, but it's important. And, and that is simply this. When we start, we always start with God. We, we don't start anywhere else. This is one of the biggest problems we have with the biblical narrative today is that modern day preaching has made the narrative about us and not about him. If you came this morning hoping to hear a message about your individual calling, your individual anointing, your individual gifting, I am going to disappoint you um, because that's not what we're going to talk about. Because the story of the Bible is not about you, it's not about me, it is not about us, it is about Him. It is not my story, it is not your story, it is His story. It has always been His story. And the problem with much of our modern preaching is, is we have made the story about us instead of the story about Him. I understand that in the global concept, and the universal history of the world, I don't make much of a difference to very few people. I get that. I have a grand sense of my nothingness. 
I do. I, I realize that. As I've gotten older, I realize it even more and more and more. Even my dogs don't do what I tell them to do at this point in my life. So the story is not about me. I don't want to make it about me because that doesn't help anybody. Isn't it amazing that you can go in and out of churches? We've had the opportunity to explore and, and visit many, many churches in our Tennessee uh, excursions. And I'm constantly amazed at how often we can sit through an entire church service and not hear anything about Jesus. Not, not a thing. I mean, we can learn how to have better marriages. We can learn how to be better husbands, better wives, better children, better musicians, better gifting. We can learn about the gifts. We can learn about all these, all these things in and, 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 and various forms, and, and, and some of them very well-spoken and very exciting and very well-delivered. But we leave, and the narrative is never about him. And if, it, if, if he's even mentioned, it's how he makes your life better and how he makes your family better and how he makes your gift better. And if we're not careful, the, the narrative is big me and tiny little Jesus somewhere in there. And, and this morning, my endeavors we get through this is to shift the narrative back to what God intended for it to be. And it's never been a story about me. It's always been a story about what he wants, what he's doing, and what his glory is going to do in the earth. It's always been about that. And we start with in the beginning God. Because if it's in the beginning Nathan or in the beginning anyone else, we're going to end up in the wrong spot. And that's kind of the problem. We start with my issues, my problem, and, and there's a whole world of ministry that is just fixated on me. And don't, don't, don't get me wrong, I know that God loves us and He cares for us and He wants to minister to our individual needs, but the big picture is not you, it's Him. When God is ministering to you, don't get me wrong, it's not for your glory, it's for His glory. It's not so you can have a name, it's so His name can be lifted up above all other names. The name of Jesus. In the beginning, God. It starts with Him. It finishes with Him. We, we don't get that right. Everything else in our narrative is wrong. And I think that's why so many of the narratives in our churches are wrong. And I'm not trying to be critical. It's just true. We've gotten fixated on this me gospel. This what God can do for you. And I was sharing with, with Pastor Rodney last night. The big, one of the big popular things is these weekend excursions of spiritual intensive uh, meetings and people are paying $350. We're in the wrong business, by the way. Um, $350 to go to a spiritually intensive weekend where your gift can be identified and your prophetic calling can be identified and you, 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 and what you have, you have, you have. Can I just say at the end of the day, it never is about you or me. I couldn't care less about my calling, your calling, or anybody else's calling, their anointing, their gifting. It always needs to be about in the beginning, God. That's the narrative. And it must remain the narrative in our lives. So this is where we start. So Genesis chapter 1. We're going to figure out the narrative. We've got to start at the beginning. And I'm going to move quickly, probably not as quickly as Brother Man, because I can't talk that fast, but, but I will try. Get this story, and I'm going to skip through here. I won't read a lot of verses, but you just keep your Bibles open to make sure we're doing right. So in the beginning, there's a, there's a narrative of God throughout the entire Bible. And one of the things that if you follow closely and you look, you're going to see there's this narrative of life. That flows all through there. I love the, 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 the Gospel of John. It's one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. I love, I love everything John wrote. I love all the Bible, but I really like John's stuff. Um, I love that John, in a side note, don't you love how some of these guys wrote in the Bible? 
John's writing and he's writing about the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's him. (laughs) John's also the guy, you know, they're cloaking some of these stories, you know, and this happened and this happened. And it was one of the disciples. John's like, it was Peter. It was Peter. John's just like, he's going to put it out there. I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. I'm going to say what I want. I can get away with it. Um, I love John. John's gospel is full of life. In fact, it's probably the key word through the entire gospel of John. Um, but as we start the, this narrative of the Bible, God begins to create. He creates the world. He creates all these things. And I want to just briefly go over these couple of questions, offer a couple of uh, trivia questions maybe for some points that mean nothing. But um, as God begins to create life, the, the first form of life, does anybody know? Let's call this a $50 question. $50 question. Chris will take care of all the remuneration at the end of service. $50 question. What is the first life that God creates on planet Earth? Does anybody know? Nobody? What? What? No, no, no. First, the first. Plant life. Plant life, right? It's, it's amazing that the scientific uh, community actually goes down with, with the, it kind of the creation goes to awareness too. So we don't actually believe, maybe some of you do, if you do, I'm so sorry. Uh, but we, we don't believe that plants have cognition. They don't know they exist. They, they just exist. Um, so we have plant life, so which is kind of the lowest form of life that we have on, on the planet. For all of you plant lovers, I'm sorry. It is the lowest form of life. I know some of you talk to your plants and sing to your plants, and that's great. Um, I can't keep plants alive. So I went to college. I killed cactus. I don't know how that happens, but I did. Um, the second form of life, this is probably the next level of cognition, is what? Does anybody know this? Is $100 so far, I'm, I'm rich and you all are broke. $100 question, anybody know what the second form is? Fish. Fish, which is, I'm fond of fish. Um, very fond of fish. Uh, and, then, and then we get to the next one. What's the next one? Birds, bird life, right? So you can kind of see that we're getting a little bit more, more cognition, a little bit more awareness, a little bit more intelligence. And then fourth, we get to... Animals, livestock, right? So all, all, the, all the beasts and all those things. Um, and then we get to the fifth form of life, and that is, what is it? It's you. It's you and me, humans, all right? So, so we get there. Um, beyond all this, we know that God is the highest form of life, right? We, we understand that. Uh, Watchman Nee called it the highest life. Um, I like the superlative life. The, the highest life that there is is the life of God, right? All things exist by him, and through him. He is the originator of all of life. There's actually another, another level of life that's actually, you know, we don't want to get into the debate of it, but there's another form of life that was created somewhere that's not in the scope of this. We actually don't get to see it until Genesis chapter 3. Does anybody know for a thousand dollar question, what is the other life form that's not mentioned here yet? Anybody know? Angelic life. Who said that? That's a thousand dollars for you, Chris. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> Angelic life. Um, even, even Paul in writing stated that, that mankind was created a little lower than the angels. So, so in, in the, if we're looking at the pecking order, you've got humans, you've got angelic life, and then obviously at the top of all that is, is God. Okay, So we, under, we understand all of that. That's going to come into play a little bit. So, so just make sure you understand that. You're like, why are we talking about this? It's in the Bible, I promise. you, right, right there. Um, so God creates life. He creates Adam and, and Eve in, in this garden, and so we get to verse 26, and that's where we're trying to get to today, and, and God creates mankind in his own image, and this is important to us, so 
in reclaiming the narrative of God, it's amazing how many times you can talk to Christian people and ask them, what is God's purpose for you on the earth? Why are you here? Why did God create us? Why are we on this planet? What's happening here? And out of a hundred people, if you ask them, you are going to get close to a hundred different answers, which is amazing to me, right? This is where we struggle with figuring out the biblical narrative. If you don't know why you're here, you're never going to figure out what place you have in God's kingdom. You're never going to be able to figure that out. It's amazing to me that with all of the gospel that we hear preached, all the stuff that we hear preached, very few people ever talk about this. And I've done some of my own investigation. Hey, why are you here? What, you know, what's your purpose on this? And, you know, you get some great ones. And I love some of the charismatic responses. Those ones are amazing. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, my, my daughter and son are constantly sending me memes. Does anybody know what memes are? I'm old. I don't quite know, but I love the jokes. I saw a lady getting baptized at a church, and her purpose was to be a warrior for the animal kingdom. Uh, yes, and God was going to help her for that. I am also a warrior, but usually against the animal kingdom. We, I, I'm from the rise, kill, and eat group uh, from the New Testament, right? I like to exercise my dominance over the fish and over the animals. Feel like that. I've had many talks with my dogs that my life is higher than their life, and so therefore they must listen to me, and they don't. But um, they're they're unbiblical. I, this is a, a side story. I don't know why I'm talking. I mean, I'm there. I'm not going to finish today. Um, we were living over at the property there in Anderson when we had our trailer. Remember our trailer? We parked our trailer there, and we got a little dog. Do you remember our, our dog? Sister Kay will probably remember. Our, we had a little Emily dog. She was a, a Shetland sheep dog. When we got her and. And uh, we were dumb then, just like we are now. We had no money, and yet we went out and bought a dog. Um, and uh, we'd run around. We lived in our little 33-foot trailer there on the church property, and we'd take her for walks and stuff, and we'd leave. And she loved to chew things up. She was a little puppy. I, I, this is truth. My wife will, will bear this. I'm not telling you stories. We, we got home one night, walked in, and our dog had gotten hold of my Bible, and she had chewed it. The only part that had been chewed up was where God gave dominion over all the creeping things on the earth. It had literally, that was the only section of my Bible that we, we never slept easy with that dog after that. Some concern that the dog was in outright rebellion against God's divine process. Adam and Eve are, are, are created. Genesis 1 states this. So, so let's get this answer. Why are we here? It's, it's clear. God's not hiding why he made us. And we see right in verse 26 that he said, let's make man in our image. I'm going to throw a couple phrases out. Don't worry, they're not real crazy. But you and I, our first priority on this planet is to be imagers of God. To be reflectors of God. That's what we're supposed to be. If you follow this through a little bit, God's initial design for Adam and Eve was for them to multiply through the earth and to bear God's image and make sure that God's will was being accomplished through the earth. They were going to be his representatives on the planet to bear his image, to be his representatives, so that people would know who God is. Now, I understand we're going to get this. Things changed a little bit. 
But God's narrative has never changed. The purpose for you and me is still to bear God's image in this earth. What do we, what do we mean by that? And I don't want to get too ahead of myself because there's some stuff here. But what I mean by this is that when we, as the, the members of the church, we'll maybe get into that a little bit. I know it probably isn't like this, but it ought to be like this. When they see us, they ought to see a reflection of Jesus in us. It's our priority. Not our gifting, not our calling, but Him. His character. His persona ought to be reflected in us. I know this might feel like a pipe dream, but it should be that wherever the church is, that they are a representation of Christ on the earth. I think that we forget sometimes that the first century Christians, they were known as those that had been with Jesus. The New Testament church, wherever they were, in whatever city, in whatever socioeconomic status, whatever political genre was over them, they knew that those were the people of God. And they knew who God was because they saw those people. Isn't it amazing? I'm, I'm always amazed as I read through these things. I gotta finish this, but <laughs> you ever notice how hated the New Testament church was? They are hated everywhere. Have you ever wondered why? They're not just a bunch of jerks, right? We know that from what we've read. They're not, they're not running around town and being a bunch of jerks. But they are so dedicated to being followers of Christ that they're rejecting everything around them that is not of Christ. And that doesn't sit well with kings. It doesn't sit well with politicians. It doesn't sit well with all of the, the oligarchs and the people that are in that, that generation. And it doesn't sit well with all the mystics. And it doesn't sit well with all the pagans because they're committed to saying, this is who Jesus is and we're representing him. Isn't that amazing? They were like some of the greatest, kindest people on the face of the earth and the world hated them. Not because they were good or kind, but because they made Jesus the most priority and he was above everything else. I, I love that. I love that. I so want to be hated by politicians because I love Jesus, but that's another story. In Eden, Eden's a unique place, and I'm going to try to cover this really quickly. I'm going to run out of time, but Eden's a unique place. Biblically speaking, there's a lot of mystery around Eden. The best we can figure out is that this is a place that God had, had conceived, a place where heaven met earth. It's a place where God would commune with his creation. That's clearly Many scholars, many writers, myself included, believe that this was probably a place that God would meet with Adam and Eve, walk with them, talk with them, have fellowship with them in this garden. It's a very unique place, and, and, and this, this Edenic concept was actually supposed to continue out through the earth. It was supposed to grow. That was the multiplication thing that God said. Be my imagers and multiply throughout the earth. Extend who I am everywhere you go. There is a concept of God that loves extension and loves to create family. I don't know if you know that. God loves this family concept. It originates with him. It's why he wants a bunch of sons and daughters. God loves family. It's why family is, is unique and, and centric to, to any Bible message in this Edenic thing that God was doing was supposed to continue forever. They're there in this garden, and then we'll get to the problem. And let me just cover this. This is a little theological, but we'll get there. Within the garden in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1 brings things to a conclusion. And then Genesis chapter 2 is kind of another view of Genesis chapter 1. If you read it carefully, 
it's like a reset, you know, and here we are, God's, it's another view of creation, God's giving a little different perspective of it as he writes, and in that, we get a little more insight into what's happening in this garden, and, and the Bible says that within this garden, there are two trees, we know they're important because none of the other trees have names, and they're centric to the garden, they're right in the middle of the garden, and it is, the, there's the first tree, does anybody know what the first tree is for a $150 question, anybody know? It's the tree of, this is the forbidden tree. It was the tree of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? Um, and then the second tree was the tree, of, the tree of life. It's interesting to note that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden, and the tree of life was not forbidden. And yet they were both mentioned there. And in this tree, you've read the story, the snake comes, the serpent comes, and talks to Eve, and Eve is deceived, and she gives Adam, and we've had problems ever since, right? Right, this woman that you gave to me. I've said that so many times. Um, and, uh, and my wife always says, well, yeah, but at least Eve was deceived. Adam was just a jack wagon. Just, yes, I'll do whatever you say. Um, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it, it, interestingly enough, and then there's the tree of life. Let me just break this down for you. If you look into the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, um, and this is actually not, we're not trying to say anything goofy, but that's actually when, when the New Testament people were quoting the Old Testament, it was often quoted in the Septuagint. The entire Old Testament was actually in the hands, so to speak, of New Testament believers by then. The, the entire, almost the entire Old Testament was already there in, in Greek translation. And um, the, the Greek word that is used in this is zoe. There's three Greek words predominantly used for life in the Bible. So if you're into Greek, uh, the, the first one is bios. We, biosphere, and it is natural life. It's the, kind of the the, the natural life that functions. The next life derives from the word suke, which is where we get soul or psychology, um, and it deals with that type of life. And then the last one, which is actually the most used term for life in the Bible, is this word zoe. And this is the word for the tree of life. So it is the tree of zoe. Interestingly, this is important because this word actually means eternal life. It's the only word that's ever used in the Greek for eternal life. It's often associated with God's life. Okay, so if you just follow with me just for a second, in the middle of this garden, whether this is figurative, literal, you can wrap your head around that, whatever you want, there is a tree that contains the essence of God life. Eternal life is there, and it is theirs for the taking. There is an invitation for them to, to have this tree and to eat from this tree, and this is eternal life. Now, wrap your head around this if you want to. We've always thought of eternal life as a designation of time, right? I have eternal life, I'm going to live forever. When actually, if you study that out, yes, there is a, there's, a, there's a feeling of time, but it's more a quality of life than it is a length of life. It, it's a type of life. It's the eternal life. It's the God life. And this is where you get into John chapter 10. And, and Jesus said, I have come that they might have life, right? That they might have the God life, not the prosperity, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, have a house, have a car. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that, uh, that you can have things. He's talking about a different level of existence that is the God kind of life. And Jesus said, I have come that you can have this God kind of life and that you can have it to abundance. 
We'll get back to that in a second. And so that is the tree of life, and it is this phenomenally important tree. In fact, I think it's one of the keys to unlocking the biblical narrative. We know we see it right at the beginning of the Bible, and then it doesn't appear again until Revelation chapter 22, where we see it at the end of the Bible, and it's in the city, this city that's 1,500 by 1,500, and it's just this giant tree on both sides of a river, and there it appears again, the tree of life. Beginning and end. Anytime you find parallels, beginning, end, bookends, starting and end in the Bible, it's important. Always. So this tree of life is an interesting concept. Let me give you some ideas here. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's, they're both in the garden. It's important for us to understand that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not a bad tree. It's made by God. It's, it's not a bad tree. We always think of it as bad. It's the knowledge of good and evil. It, it is what it is. It's not a bad tree, but it was a forbidden tree. They weren't supposed to eat from it. We can wrap our heads around. That's a whole other message of why God would give them that. Let me just say this for for you. you. You truly can't have relationship without choice. It's not relationship without choice, right? I know for all of our people that don't believe in, in choice, I, God's love is minimized when choice is not available. There's something unique in the nature of God that he loves, and his love gives us choice because God never wanted automaton droids. He wanted people who would choose him. We see that in the entire biblical narrative. The biblical narrative is about God never being removed from free moral choice. Never being removed from it. He, you can tell that there's darkness that tries to tempt God to take away free moral choice. But God is unmovable. Unmovable in his love. Unmovable in agape. Because he's already made his mind up. We don't have the time to get into this, but... Do a quick study on agape, and you're going to find out that God's love for you is not sensual. I know we love that. People just love to get all ooey-gooey, and, you know, God's madly in love with me, and, you know, make love to Jesus nonsense, and all that other stuff. And that's actually not agape, just so you know. Agape is, it's not devoid of emotion, but emotion is not contained as part of the core value. God doesn't love you. God doesn't agape you because he has strong emotions for you. God loves you out of the strength of his own character. I would take that over emotional love any day because it's unchanging. God's love for me is unchanging. I don't need God to be emotional in his love for me. I need his character to be unchanging. Some say, well, God could never send anybody to hell because he loves everybody. You don't understand agape. Agape is not an emotional thing. It's a set thing. God decided a long time ago, I'm going to love my creation. It's a set thing. I can't be moved from that. Right? That, do you understand that? It's an unchanging love. It's not on the whims of emotion. I've been married for 27 years. Did I get that right? It's going to be 27 years. It's going to be 27 years. I know there are days that Sherry loves me, but I'm not sure she likes me. I believe she might have actually said that a few times. I'm glad that God's love is not emotionally based. It doesn't need to be. I'm not saying you can't be emotional about God. Be as emotional as you want to about God. But understand that has nothing to do with agape. And when we're actually instructed to love God, we're actually instructed to agape God. Wrap your head around this. God doesn't want your emotions either. (laughs) He wants you to have consistency in your dedication to him. We, we want to sing, dance, look how much I love Jesus, look how much I run, dance. God's like, I'm not really concerned with that. I'm concerned, do you have something core in your nature that is never going to give up on me, that is going to be faithful? The knowledge of the, of the tree of good and evil. We're, let me get through this. It creates, you know the story. Hopefully you've read that. 
Adam and Eve take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's some interesting things that happen there, but we're not going to dial down into that. But let me just say this. Something significantly shifts, not in the narrative of God, but in the narrative of how mankind is going to be involved with God's plan. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. The curses are, are laid out on them. They're expelled from the garden and the flaming sword and the angels guarding that. And and Eden now is blocked off from the people of God. More importantly, the tree of life is blocked off from humanity. There is no more opportunity for eternal life at this juncture in time. There's no more opportunity for mankind to experience the God life. Throughout the entire Old Testament, I know we love to make comparison to the patriarchs. And we love to try to make New Testament comparisons to the Old and the Old Covenant and all of these things. These are all unredeemed people with no Zoe inside of them, just so you know that. That's why God has to keep appearing to them and coming down and saying, hey, I need you to do this. Right? There's no inward witness. It's why... I'm always weirded out when New Testament believers are like, you know, I saw God the other day. Like, I'm pretty sure you didn't, actually. Because that's not the way he appears. Now, I, if I just messed somebody's whole Christianity up, I'm sorry. I did not mean to. You believe what you want, whatever. But that's actually not the way that God, that God appears uh, to mankind. If you're looking for visions, you will see something. I'm just not sure what you'll see. Um, uh, I remember when we were at college. I'm telling way too many stories. We had some guys, they were devil busters. That was their name, the devil busters. And they got together, there was about four or five of them, and they, they were just, we, Satan, right now, we're taking authority over you. You're nothing. We command you, we're this and we're that, and we command you to appear before us right now. And, and something did appear to them. Something did. I was the floor leader. I got a knock on my door. said, hey, you need to get down here. Something crazy's going on. Well, all these devil busters, one of them was literally in the closet in a fetal position sucking on his thumb. The other one was cowering under his bed. They called out a bunch of demons, and guess what? They showed up. Be careful what you look for, right? The narrative is God, right? I don't want to see any of that other stuff. I'm, if it comes, we'll take authority as it comes, but I'm not looking for it, right? Anyway, I don't know why we're talking about that. Good stories, though. Tree of knowledge of good and evil, they get there. There's something interesting about the tree of good and evil. Why, why is there a shift? God said the day that you eat of this, you'll surely die. We know Adam and Eve don't drop dead, but we know that something significantly shifts, shifts in them. Their opportunity to contain the life of God inside of them is robbed. And the minute that happens, their bodies start to decay. I, I truly believe that mankind was actually built for eternal life. We were, there was never supposed to be this concept of death inside of us. It was supposed to be the zoe of God that was to sustain us, this unkillable life of God, the uncreated life of God inside of us would sustain us, would, would continue. But Adam and Eve choose, for whatever reason, the knowledge of good and evil. And in that instance, something shifts inside of them, and, and, and they fall away, and they're, they're kicked out of the garden. Let me give you an illustration of what I, I think th- this kind of means. The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented so much more. Remember, it's not bad. It's good and evil. But it represents, many writers have wrote about this, it represents a self-sufficiency on yourself rather than God. I'm going to determine what is good and what is evil. I'm going, understand this. God's intention for us was to never live from a concept of right and wrong, of good and evil. It was always supposed to be living from the concept of the life of God inside of me. 
I don't need to worry and struggle with right, wrong, because I'm bearing the life of God. It is bearing witness. It is guiding me. It is leading me into all truth and to all victory. So I don't need to, in my own mind, in my own heart, to determine what is right or what is wrong. Adam and Eve make a decision that they are going to be the determiners of their own fate. They will decide what is right and what is wrong. And they become self-sufficient at that moment. And we discover the ultimate enemy of God and us. Don't worry about anything else. Worry about demons and Satan and all that other stuff. Your biggest problem is self. My biggest problem is self. I can bind and loose every devil, call it by name. Does anybody remember the guy that was on the radio? Do you remember that guy that used to be on the radio? Demon, what is your name? He used to get people. Yes, Bob Larson. He's talking, supposedly talking to demons. What is your name and all these things and blah, 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 blah. Your problem is not the demonic world. I'm not saying they're not out there and doing their things, but self is the problem of mankind. Self is what gets Adam and Eve expelled from the God. Self is what takes away the opportunity for the life of God to dwell in the hearts of men and women. It's self, it's self, it's self. Literally, Adam and Eve were taking God and saying, we want to sit on our own throne and rule on our own lives. Listen, Adam and Eve did not throw away God. They did not say, we hate you, God, we don't love you. But they decided that they wanted to have a statement in the the flow of their existence rather than trusting God. And self becomes elevated and self gets them... It's interesting, this tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to run through this real quick because I know we've got to get somewhere. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents self-sufficiency, self-exaltation. I want to tell you that much of the preaching that we hear today is preaching from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and not from the tree of life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, choosing to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would become the essence of every religious experience that mankind would then begin to follow. Religion is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is man's idea of how we can live the God life by our own rules. The Bible says that God created man and and, and woman in his own image. It's kind of warm, so probably nobody has a glove. Anybody have a glove with them? Ladies, glove, cowboys, bull, glove. All right, let's just imagine, if you will, a glove. This is the, it's maybe not a great illustration, but it's the best I can do. God creates man and woman in his own image. Think of that glove. It, it looks like a hand, right? But it doesn't have any life. The life of God is what was supposed to fit into that glove. So... The New Testament would put it this way. They have a form of godliness, but denied the power of it. We've always gotten to that dunamis, and we've tried to make that a Holy Ghost thing. It's not. It's they have a form, an image, but they're missing the life. They're missing the thing that would generate what it's supposed to be. It looks like it, and, 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 it, and it has this. And understand, this is what Adam and Eve, the, the image of God remained on them. They still remained a glove. But the thing that was supposed to infuse them with the narrative of God inside of them 
was now gone. And this is what we do today. It's what Adam and Eve did, and it's what's been done since the Garden of Eden, and it continues to be done today, is we continue to try to take our glove and fill it with whatever we think is going to give us what we think God wants us to have. And so we start to fill it up because there's something innate in us that knows that we are supposed to have something inside of us that is to fill us, that God quality of His nature that is supposed to give us life, and everybody's looking for that, and we're all filling our glove up with something. A lot of people are filling it up with religion. A lot of people are filling it up with sin. But make no mistake, everybody's trying to fill up that glove so it doesn't remain empty. And it's all about the knowledge of good and evil. This is where religion comes in. If you notice, every religion has their own standard of what is right and what is wrong. And so mankind is left grappling with this concept of I want to be good enough but I, I want to eschew evil. So I got to be good, but I got to be bad. And then religion labels good and labels bad, right? So you go down the churches around here and what we do in Tennessee, everybody's got a different good and everybody's got a different bad. Some good is the length of your skirt, right? There was a church out in Sacramento that went where we used to pastor. Their good was how much beer you could drink without getting drunk. I kid you not. That was their good. You're very good because you can drink a lot without getting drunk. I've never had a sip of alcohol in my life. I smell alcohol, and I'm in danger of getting pulled over for a DUI. Um, this is the way it is. But we set these things. This is good, and this is evil. Oh, that's evil. And it's all mankind's structure to add something to that empty glove to try to make us feel fulfilled. And then what people do is they, they call that, and they call that God. But it's never what we were supposed to fill our lives up with. And so here's the problem. Roderick talked a little bit about this last night. We start to fill ourselves up with something, and then we call something that is not God, God. This is godly. Godly. It's godly because I don't have a beard. Listen, I spent 51 years to get to the place where I can grow a decent beard. I'm going to grow it. Right? I mean, this took a long time. This just did not happen overnight. It's a lot of work, folks. When I was in college, everyone was envious because you had to shave. You know, you couldn't go to class not clean shaven. I never even had to shave. I'd go two weeks. A little peach fuzz on there. I'll take that off. Put a little milk on there. Let the cat lick it off. Good. This is, a, this is an accomplishment, folks. We set all these rules and standards that often have nothing to do with the life of God. And yet we call it God. And because we call it God, we, we get some sort of self-sufficiency that we feel good about ourselves. And we've created a standard that thereby we judge ourselves as right with God and filled with God when it has nothing to do with God. And that's good and bad, folks. I'm not throwing fingers. I spent the majority of my life struggling and trying so hard to be a good Christian. Trying so hard. I was ardent. I, I want to tell you, I'm not, I wasn't perfect. I probably wasn't the best. But I'm going to tell you, from the moment I got saved at 15 years old, I... I wanted to please God. I wanted to be his servant. And I struggled because I knew I was falling short all the time. All the time. At the end of the day, I know me better than anybody. I can fool a lot of people, but I never can fool myself. I know who I am. I know my mistakes. I know my own errors. And it was just a weight. I'd put on the good pretend and fill my glove up again one more time with all the things that I thought would make me. But in the end, I was dying inside. I wanted something more, and I was trying to live up to the standard of God. A couple of years, way, actually almost a, probably 100 years ago, there was a book that came out 
by a guy named Charles Sheldon. It was called In His Steps. Anybody familiar with that book? Bestseller, sold millions and millions of books. It's actually a good book. I've read it. Um, some really good stuff in there. In the 80s, the, the concepts that, 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 uh, that Sheldon wrote about manifested in a new kind of thing, and it was called the What Would Jesus Do movement. Anybody familiar with that? Did any, no, 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 you don't have to show of hand. Did anybody have a WWJD bracelet? Warren, you're so proud. What would Jesus do? But the concept was that at some level, we could, through our own efforts, be like Jesus. Somehow. Remember, we talked about all those forms of life. Us trying to be like Jesus is like a chicken trying to be like a human. Can you imagine chickens walking around with their WWHD bracelets? What would human do? That's about as asinine as it is for us to walk around with a bracelet. Well, what would Jesus do? I'm trying to be like Jesus. What would Jesus do in this situation? See, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. And I'll get into this in just a second. I'm trying to get this thing through where I want it to be. But the question is not what would Jesus do. The question is, is what is Jesus doing? You and I were never meant to try to live this life apart from his DNA flowing inside of us. Without the Zoe of God pulsing inside of us, we would never, and Jesus, God never intended for us to be able to live like Him apart from Him. And yet all of religion is trying to live like Him without Him. It's why we make bylaws. It's why we make creeds. It's why we have all of these statements. We're trying to figure this out. And God all the time is saying, it's not about that. It is about me. It is my narrative. And I want to come into your life. Adam and Eve choose, they go the other way for thousands of years. God is using imagers that have no life. We know it's a flawed concept. God knows it's a flawed concept. Nationalism comes in. God raises up people. He raises up a nation. They all ultimately fail. God knows they'll fail. He gives hints about a coming time when the, the life of God would be available again. Yet we have moments of tabernacles and temples and all of these things. And if we're not careful, we'll get caught up into dispensational theology and covenant theology. And God was expecting this and blah, 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 blah. The narrative has never changed. God is still waiting for a time when the life of God will be available to mankind again. Interestingly enough, I, I, this is some deep theology. I'm not going to get into it very, very, very deep because I don't fully understand it all. But there's a unique concept. When Jesus comes, we believe, I'm sure you do, that Jesus is, is fully God. He doesn't stop being God, but he's also fully man. I believe Jesus is 100% man. I think he has to come as a man. He has to come flesh and blood. We know that in the Old Testament that Yahweh would appear all the time to Moses, to Gideon, to Abraham. He comes out. So it's not that God can't appear as a human anytime he wants. He can. He's God. He does whatever he wants, Right? I mean, that's, we used to come up with theophanies, Christophanies, and all these things. And really, it's just God doing what he wants to do. So we know that God could walk into this building as a man right now. There's nothing stopping God from doing that. He could do that and appear as in flesh and blood. But it would be an appearance. Jesus actually has to come as a real human through the whole process of being born. The whole process. 
I, I know it's crude, and I don't want to go crazy, but it is weird thinking about Jesus needing a diaper change. I'm just saying that is a weird concept, but you know what happened. You know what happened. Listen, I didn't like changing diapers to begin with, but could you imagine being Joseph? He knows this is the Son of God. It's not a secret. He knows Jesus is the manifest God on earth. Hey, Joseph, could you change the diapers? No, that is your job, woman. I am not changing God's diaper today. You are in charge of that. I just, I don't know. I know that's weird, but, but we, 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 we fully believe that, 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 that Jesus is 100%. He has to be. Let's go back to the garden. Mankind abandons things. There's some interesting things in here. I, I know I'm going to try to get, are you bored yet? <laughs> you would say that even if you were bored. Jesus comes as a man. Paul actually calls him the second Adam. There's this unique plan that God has. I think God knows that mankind is struggling under the pressures. And God does the best thing that he can do. You know, when God, God can never do better than himself. <laughs> Aren't you glad that God has not given us a reasonable facsimile? That he has given us himself. And so Christ steps out of eternity and steps into humanity. He's born of a virgin. He's growing up, has all the challenges. And somewhere the New Testament gives us this odd concept. I don't understand it, but Jesus as a man, at some point, I don't know, we know at 12 years old, he's pretty clued into the fact that, that he is who he is. He's teaching in the synagogue with authority at, at 12. We know that. So at some point, Jesus we know at one and two, to be like, well, you know, Jesus always knew he was God. I don't know. I know at one or two he probably didn't because he's probably not capable of those kind of thoughts. But at some point, Jesus understands that he has this position that he has put himself in. And he is going to offer himself up. And there's this dialogue that starts to happen. And this is important to us. He starts to say things like, listen, I don't speak on my own. I only speak of what the Father has said. If you hear me saying something, it's because of what? I've always wondered. That's a weird concept. I don't understand. Why, how, do, how do I wrap my head around this? It's simply this. I, I don't know that I have the full answer, but I do know this. God, Jesus, as a 100% man, is going to model for us what we are supposed to be like. So Jesus is living as a man, yet with the Zoe life of God inside of him. And so he is showing us. Now, again, God is sovereign. He does whatever he wants. Any limitations on God are self-imposed, not imposed by anyone else. And, and so Jesus is relating to us. Father, son in the Bible is a weird concept. You know, and I know people get into this, the eternal sonship of Christ and all this other weird stuff. I don't know where all that wraps around. But I know this, that father-son relationship in the Bible is for our benefit, not his benefit. <laughs> It's for us to understand how we are supposed to relate to God. It, and consequently, have you ever noticed that in the modern day, everybody wants to talk about Father God? We visit a church where they take away the definitive article to make it seem more powerful. Meaning like this, Father has something really powerful for you today. And then the charismatic movement is this. I'm sure you've caught it. I was talking to Holy Spirit today. As if that's his name, right? Father has something. Have you ever noticed it's never Jesus I asked the Lord, I said, why is it we always talk about Father, Daddy, God? We've been in churches where it's like, just love on Daddy. Just Daddy. It's like weird. I don't understand that. And I don't, Lord, I don't understand. Because people want Daddy God and people want mystical God. People are not that interested in the Lord God. <laughs> right? 
Lord God. Jesus comes down. He's showing us what it is for mankind to live. We know, Scripture is very clear, Jesus is the visible image of God. Scripture says that, right? Because I wonder what God looks like. Jesus. It's not a trick question. It's very easy. He said it, right? I wonder what God's like. Jesus. It's right there. You need to wonder. There's no mystery to that. It's, it's clear. This is, this is who God is. We, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to. There's nothing mystical about it. It's very clear who he is. And Jesus is showing us how a, a man, how a person, how mankind is supposed to live, right? He's the second Adam. This is the way that I intended for it to be done. It didn't work the first time, so I'm going to do it. Come on, man, you know what? If it's gonna, I'm going to do it, my, if it's going to be done right, I'm going to have to do it myself, right? And that's what God does. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to make any chance that mankind is going to mess this up. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it myself. It's going to be done right. And so Jesus comes as a man to show us how we are supposed to live with the life of God pulsating inside of us. So Jesus comes, dies on the cross. There's tons of stuff. And you start understanding this imagery and this narrative of God. All of a sudden, the Bible starts to make total sense. People are like, the Bible is very hard to understand. No, there's a complete narrative there. It all makes sense if you just look at it, right? Here Jesus comes down as the second Adam, and the grand reset begins. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is resetting the clock and restoring the Eden narrative that God started. There's so many comparisons, and I love it. We won't have time to get into it all today. But Adam fails in the garden, but Jesus does not fail in the garden. Right? God takes Eve out of the ribcage of Adam, and it's the perfect match for Adam, but they fail. Jesus on the cross is poked in the very same spot, and blood and water flow out, and the perfect fit for Jesus is the bride of Christ, and it comes out again, and God is not only reset. Yes, Jesus is the second Adam, but you and me as the bride of Christ get to be the second Eve, washed clean by the blood of our Savior. God's saying, I will have a bride that is spotless, that is redeemed, that no one can say anything against, because I have brought her out, and the church becomes bone of his bone, and flesh of his flesh flesh and there's nothing greater than the church of Jesus Christ pulsating with the life of God inside of her just like the life of Adam was pulsating in Eve the life of God now pulsates into the church after the resurrection Jesus appears to the disciples they're in a closed room the Bible's clear that the doors are locked the doors are shut and Jesus as a life-giving spirit raised up steps into the room not through an open door but comes and the Bible says he breathes on them and he says receive my spirit and at that moment the Zoe life of God transfers out and into humanity again and the church is born as pure and holy before God and the life of God is once again available to mankind Think about it, for thousands of years, no life, but then Jesus makes himself available. Oh, I know, you don't get it. I'm trying. Self-sufficiency led to death. It always, it can't, man can't sustain life in himself. It was never meant to. Adam and Eve lost life and gained death. Now we have the ability to fully image God and reflect him by the spirit of the Lord that dwells in us. The grand reset. Jesus is the second Adam. Go with me to John chapter 1. I'm going to try to cover this as quickly as I can. John chapter 1 is a parallel of Genesis chapter 1. If you look at it carefully, it is the grand reset. It is the new 
the new opportunity for mankind to be born anew. In the beginning, God. Now, what does John 1 say? In the beginning was the word, the logos, the intention of God. From the very beginning, from the eternal intention of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh, right? The word was God. The word was with God. Everything was made by him. Nothing was made without him. We know they're talking about Christ being there, the center of all these things. And then if you follow through, the Bible says that he came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the power, the authority to become the children of God. That's so much bigger than we think it is. Let me tell you what happens when you got born. We love the phrase born again, but it's really born from above. Why do we use the phrase born again? Because mankind was in a state of dead decay. Under the, the prince of the power of darkness. We know that. Adam had yielded. I don't want to get too far into that. But Adam had yielded his contract of authority over to the serpent in the garden. God has to reset. Adam and Eve chose. They chose from life. To death. God resets that force and he comes. And it's this huge thing. I know we, we follow you know, the children of Israel and these things, but this is not theological. I know we always want to make theological, ideological concepts, positional, says positional theology, and da, 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 no, no. Forget all of that nonsense. I am telling you the minute that you are born from above, whatever that looks like, whenever that happened for you, the DNA of God comes inside of you. Not positionally, not theologically. I'm telling you, the very life of God comes inside of you. The Zoe life. Listen, the reason that you and I have heaven, the reason that you and I will live forever, the reason that death is no longer scary for us is because eternal life, the Zoe life of God resides in me and it cannot be killed. It cannot be quenched. It cannot be snuffed out. The Zoe life of God is not created. It is eternal. How do I know I have eternal life? Because I have the Spirit of the Lord living inside of me. It is my guarantee that I will always be with Him because He is always with me. This thing about being called the children of God is so important. And God is saying, you are my children. Not, not because you made a decision. I get that we love decisions. How many want to make a decision for Jesus? How many, I see this all the time on Facebook. We had five decisions for the Lord today. What does that even mean? I'm so much more interested in the Zoe life of God springing up in somebody. When that happens there, you don't question whether you got something. I'm telling you, the, the day I went down to the front of a church, 15 years old, and I poured my heart out before the Lord, I'm telling you, the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ rushed into my heart. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that something had happened in my life. Was I perfect? No. Am I perfect today? No, I'm not. But there was no question. Nobody had to convince me that something had happened. I knew something had happened. You don't go from death to life and not know something happened. 
Something was inside of me. It was, it was reverberating. It was stirring. It was the life of God. I could feel it. Something had awakened inside of me. I remember going back and sitting in the church pew and my dad hugging me. And I'm saying, Dad, I, this was my exact words. I got him. I got him. I got him. And my dad hugged me and he said, I know you do, son. I know you do. There was an understanding that the life of God was inside of me. And I want to tell you, the DNA of God resided. And I was not positionally his son. I was DNA linked to the Zoe life of God. I was his child. Couldn't be undenied because the life of God was flowing in me. The second Adam. You say, I, I don't know if this is true. Uh, okay. Let's look at John just really quickly. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, people always wonder, well, what, what is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's the way back to the narrative of God. That's why he's saying I'm the way. What is the truth that he becomes? The truth is, I am God's child. What did Satan say, or Lucifer, or the snake, whatever you want to call him in the garden? What did he say? You will be like God. The colossal lie was that they weren't already like God. He convinced them of something other than God had said. God had made them in their own image. They said, you'll be like God. Isn't it funny that often we're chasing something that God already says we can have? Chasing after it through the wrong means. And then he said, I am the life, and this is the zoe of God. And then he says, no one comes to the father except through me what are you saying that's how you become family again that's how you get to be a child of god it's how god becomes a father to you through the way the truth and the life we keep going what does jesus say in scripture he not only does he stop there but then he says i am the bread of zoe it doesn't stop there he tells somebody later he said i am the resurrection and the zoe Continually. And then we get to one of my favorite chapters where he talks about, I am the vine. Oh, does that make, all the feelers start to go off when you start to understand that. I actually believe the tree of life was a vine tree. Doesn't need to be, but for me, it does. When you see it in the book of Revelation, it's on both sides of the river. It fills the entire city. Seems like a vine tree to me. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But Jesus said, I am the vine. And if you abide in me, if you remain in me, if you stay in me, if I become the sustenance of your life, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I am the life of God, and you have the opportunity. You have the opportunity to receive me unto yourself. What an amazing thing. The resurrection of life, the vine. All right, let's flip over. I'm going to finish. We're just about done. Food all done? Everybody staring at me in the back? Yes, hurry. Food's, hamburgers are getting cold. All right. I love Colossians. It's one of my... I love the book of Colossians. If you start to, to wonder about the life of God, just read Colossians. There's so much about this superlative life of God that is uncovered in, in the book of Colossians. But I know we've talked about this. But let me read this scripture to you, and we'll try to wrap this up. Paul writing to this church in verse 27. Again, this is the common English Bible, so a little, maybe a little different. God wanted to make the glorious riches of this secret plan known among the Gentiles which is Christ living in you, the hope of glory. What an amazing concept. Not theoretical, not theological, not positional. A spiritual reality that this morning, if you have accepted Christ by faith, invited him in, Christ lives in you. I know we think that. I know we say that, but I'm not sure we live from that. What an amazing concept when you wake up in the morning, your feet hit the ground, and you know that the creator of all the universe, his life source is living inside of you. 
I know we do all this, you know, you need to figure out your identity in Christ and all this other stuff. Hello. Do you not realize Jesus is dwelling inside of you? Well, brother, I'm really struggling. I, I get it, but Jesus is with you, right? I, I, let's continue. I'm just finishing this up. John, first John, let me just read a couple of scriptures. Make sure we're staying. Let me, who'll give me just five more minutes, five more minutes? Raise your hand if you'll give me five, 10, 15. Good, good. I know, that's preacher talk, I know. First John chapter five, verse 12. L- listen to this. I love this scripture. One, one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. The one who has the son has life, Zoe. The one who doesn't have the son does not have life. What, what, what are we saying? Jesus is the tree of life. We literally, this is why Jesus said, you remember when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the Bible said a lot of people headed out, right? What was Jesus saying? Was he talking about cannibalism? No. He was talking about receiving him as the tree of life. We know that. And the Bible's full of this imagery of fruit, right? There's the, 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 the works of the flesh, but then there's the fruit of the spirit. Okay, let me try to give you some handles and I'll try to cover this really quickly. Are you still with me? Let me give you one more scripture from 1 John since you're already there. 1 John chapter 3. These are great. These, these are just faith building up. John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, and I love this in the Common English Bible, that we should be called God's children, and that is what we are. Oh, man. Oh, stick that in your pipe and smoke it, devil. The DNA of Christ lives inside of us. The Zoe life of God, the narrative of God is living inside of us. Adam and Eve chose from life to go to death. How does this happen in our lives? Let me give you some quick handles, and we'll try to cover this really quickly. We're the opposite. We start from death, but we get to go to life. How do we get this life of God inside of us? How do we make this, rather than theory crafting and theological, how do we get some some practical handles on this? I I, I think there's a couple of things, and I want to get this, and and we'll miss some other stuff. If you want some more information, there's a lot that we could sit down and talk about with this. I think you'd find a ton of biblical narrative that, that supports all of this and is even deeper. But how do we live by this indwelling life of Christ? And that's the mystery. The mystery of the ages is, is that God's people would live by the indwelling life of Christ inside of us. Scripture is very clear about that. How does that happen? Well, it starts by death. <laughs> Adam chose death, so we're in this position of death. In order for self to be expelled from mankind, it takes death again. This is why we do water baptism. Water baptism, we love to make it this little beautiful, oh, it's so, you know, we give these little, got baptized on this day, it's so beautiful. Literally, water baptism is us drowning somebody. I'm convinced we should hold people down a little longer than we do, right? I mean, did you get it? I'm not sure. I'm kidding, only kind of. Baptism is not symbolic. It's us saying that we are, crucifying the old self. We are abandoning. This is what repentance is. Repentance is not, God, I'm sorry for what I did. Repentance is saying, this is wrong, and I'm getting rid of it. I'm getting rid I'm burying this thing. 
I'm baptized, I'm drowning this thing. And then the, the breaking forth of the water is new birth. Coming out again as a new creation born from above. The old man is gone and the new person arises born from above. That is what baptism is. It's not saying, it's a cute little religious thing. And it's in our, you know, on our websites we put down, what, what, what do we practice? What are the, the things that we practice? Foot washing and that's weird. You guys don't do foot washing. Okay, good. I always want to know when they're foot washing because I try to avoid those things. My feet are not great. Um, that's why I wear shoes. Um, so you don't have to look at my nasty feet. Um, but they, they, all these things that we observe, what are we observing? We observe the Lord's Day. We observe the Lord's Supper. We observe water baptism. Quit observing it and start to understand what it really means. Man, I have been born from above. I have crucified the old, and now I am born from again. I am living the life of God. I have dethroned self, and I have empowered once again Jesus Christ to be the ruler of my life. I'm now not living by my own standards of right or wrong, what is good or what is bad, but I'm literally living by the life of God that is inside of me. Well, my brother, that's not scripture. Why then does Paul say? Why does Paul say? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. It's not I. It's Christ that lives in me and the life that I now live. Come on, anybody understand what I'm talking about? We've got to tap into this into a stronger way. So it starts by death. Where does, where, where does it mean to be born again? It literally, you can't be born again. This is my own theology. Don't throw this on Pastor Rod. But I truly believe that you cannot truly be born from above until you have died from below. You have to crucify the flesh and the things that are involved. Now, does that happen one time and you're done? No. The flesh tends to get up and zombify and come back again, and you have to die daily again. Right? That's what the Apostle Paul said. I'm crucifying this flesh once again, and this is the Christian struggle, is that we're constantly yielding not to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but going back. God, I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to continue to feed and to feast on the tree of life. So it starts with death. How do we get life of God? By killing the old man. The works of the flesh, they're all listed in the Bible. You can read them for yourself. Then the second thing, here's your handle, is by faith. <laughs> we live by faith. I know it's a weird concept for us, but we live by faith that Christ lives inside of us. Listen, if you're ever going to try to reduce this down to where you don't need faith, you're always going to be discouraged. My kids and I were talking about this on the way to, to, to church this morning. Here's John the Baptist. You know, he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River, and he gets this massive experience. If anybody ought to know, right, it's John. A couple of years later, hey, are you the one, or should we look for another? Understand this, discouragement and depression will make you ask wrong questions and get you looking for the wrong answers. John already knew what the answer was, right? We're not careful. We miss out on these things. So we, by faith. Does it always feel, do I get up every day and feel the lion of the tribe of Judah roaring inside of me? No, I don't. Do I wake up every day and feel like, man, I am a child of God? Not every day. Do every day I feel like, man, I am, I am bearing the image of Christ the exact way I'm supposed to? Honestly, most days not. But by faith, by faith, I know it's real. And I know that I have access to the life of God. So we die out to ourselves. We live by faith. And then this last one, this will be the last handle we got, and we'll be done. We're 11.58. And I like this one. I wish I had more time to talk about it, but we, we don't. We're out of time. We'll talk about this at a later time. But living by the indwelling 
life of Christ takes us back to the garden. Remember, we started in the garden. Let's get back to the garden. And we know that, that we have this idea of God fellowshipping with mankind in the garden, right? We know that after Adam and Eve sinned, God comes to the garden looking for them. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of God's desire to fellowship with mankind. I think it's still there. I think that God loves to be with us. This is why I know we, you know, when I was growing up in Pentecostal churches, we, we ain't got a lot here this morning, but the Bible says where two or three are gathered together in his name. There he is in the midst of them. I see one, two, three. Oh, we've got enough for church today. That's not what that verse means. That's not what that verse means at all. It means that when God's people start to fellowship one with another, that God is in the middle of that thing with them. That's the ecclesia. That's the church. That's the body of Christ. So there's this interesting concept. We're not going to get too deep in this morning. I can't. I'm out of time. But I think that the way that we learn to live by the indwelling life of Christ is with an intentionality to provide, to have fellowship with God. And this is two-part. I'm not going to go deep. And this is the Greek word that we use for koinonia. Koinonia, which is more than just fellowship. It's more than, than just hanging out together watching a football game. That's not koinonia. That's not what that word means. It's not meaning, oh, we have things in common and so we're hanging together. It's a deeply spiritual term that's, that's rooted in this, this concept of family. And it's rooted in this concept of togetherness. It's rooted in this concept of unity that you and I have things in common. And because of that, there's this unique fellowship and this is the word that I think, as, as God would minister, uh, I, I believe, to Adam and Eve in the garden, it's the same thing. We have to, with intentionality, learn to fellowship with the Lord. We have him inside of us. Activate that. Activate the divine nature of God that's inside of you. Whoa, whoa, did you just say the divine nature of God? Yes, Peter said that. That exceeding great and precious promises have been given to us, that by them we might be partakers of the divine nature. That's what Peter said. What is he talking about? He's talking about the life of God that is inside of us. That we have this gift of being able to access the tree of life through the person of Jesus Christ. The spirit of the Lord that dwells inside of us. To be able to get up in the morning and to engage in fellowship and koinonia with Christ. I encourage you to do this. It's something I do. You might find it weird. I don't know. I love to just, one of the ways I love to fellowship with the Lord is just by saying his name. I've been practicing this now as I've been on this journey for, for a couple of months. I'm do it out loud. I'm not demonstrative. But, but I love to do this. I'm not talking about all the Hebrew names. You know, don't go down all that, whatever. So if you want to, fine. I don't care. Um, sorry, I felt like maybe I hurt somebody's feelings. That was, that was not my intention. But, but I, what I love to do, and I just do it quietly in my morning devotion. I've learned I sit and get my Bible out. I'm reading through, trying to read through the Bible like I do every year. And what I just stop and close my eyes and just focus on my Lord. And for me, I just, I don't know, I feel like there's something so awesome about the name of Jesus. And so in my own way, I just, not out loud, I mean, sometimes out loud, but not, you know, shouting from the rooftops. Just, I sit on my couch, grab my Bible, and I just close my eyes. Jesus. Sometimes I don't say anything else, just quietly. Jesus. Jesus. Just, I don't know what, I don't know what it does for you, but there's an intentionality that something activates inside of me. A response to his name. The Bible talks about that a lot. And, and just to fellowship with him. And no, another thing that I like to do within the New Testament is just to, to take those verses that I know that God is speaking about me. And I, I just, I, I put my name in, in there. I know that's weird for some people, but I do. It helps me. It helps me fellowship with the Lord. It helps me fellowship with him. I love doing that through the book of Ephesians. God, I, I thank you, Jesus, that I'm, you've chosen me. 
I've been loved. I've been forgiven. I've been set apart. There's just something about engaging in fellowship. And that's the first part. And the second part, which, again, is a whole other message. There's something about fellowship, not just with the Lord, but there's something that when we fellowship one with another and the Lord at the same time. Listen, one of the problems that we have in church, and I know small groups are really popular today, and, you know, we got biking groups, and let's get together, and let's go swim group, and let's go, you know, whatever group, you know, whatever group. And, oh, you know, we're doing our small groups for Jesus, and that's great. That's fellowship, and that's one with another. But koinonia, I, I truly believe that koinonia between the people of God is not just me hanging out with Rodney. It's me hanging out with Pastor Rodney and Christ being in the middle of that. There's something unique in this that happens, and and I truly believe this, that I can't be what God intends for me to be without you. Now, some days I don't like that. But this is the one you're really not going to like. You can't be what you're supposed to be without me. Some of you just lost the victory right there. You're like, there is no way, God. I am not hanging out with this dude, not ever. Ephesians talks about the joints and the ligaments of the body of Christ supporting one another until we come to the full maturity of Christ. That two or three are gathered together in my name. Two or three will agree as touching anything. There's something unique about the people of God coming together in the name of Jesus to fellowship not just with the Lord but with one another. You know what we actually, you know what the Bible actually called that? They called it ecclesia. They called it the church. What is the mission of the church? To be imagers of God. The early church, the concept of, of, of ecclesia was not people who were called out. That actually wasn't their concept. I know we go into the Greek and we're like, ek means out of, and then, you know, lesia is those ones, the ones, and so we're the called out ones. And that's great. That's what it means in the Greek, but that's actually not what the first century church thought. The first century church, if you would have met with them and said the church, they would have immediately thought of a body of believers in a city that would gather together to bear the image of Christ and to practice the principles of God and living by the life of God together. They never had this concept of we are being called out. They had more of a concept of being called forth to be the imagers of God. And that's what we are. We get the opportunity for the world to see us as the church and to see the head of the church of Jesus Christ. Come on. I, I firmly believe this, that the, the, the love we have for one another and the love we have for our Lord should be so contagious, so overwhelming that people would look. And I know that people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But I, th- I, I want to live in such a way with the people of God that it makes the teeth of the ungodly itch. They're like, there's just something about those people. I hate everything about them, and I so want what they have. I guarantee there are people out in the world that are thinking that. We hate God, we hate Jesus, but man, I wish we had what they had. And eventually that breaks them down, and they come, and they're like, I need to have what you have. And we're like, yes, it's Jesus. (laughs) It's Jesus, and he's ready to come into your heart. Repent and let us baptize you for a while. I'm sorry, I've gone long. Do, are we, do we have some understanding on this? I encourage you, don't make this a theological sermon. I know I've, we've got practice. Would you, would, would you make a covenant that you be intentional with your koinonia, with your fellowship? Access the life of God that is inside of us. Make him the center of our conversations. Bring him in. When we're having our hamburgers, when we're out eating our ice cream, when we're out watching our family play football, let's bring Christ into that. 
Let's be conscious that we are imaging him wherever we go. We're reflecting his goodness. Let his name be on our lips. Let his character and his DNA be flowing inside of us. Let, let our light so shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify our Jesus. Let us be those people that the life of God is not theoretical, but it is burning inside of us. It is consuming us with the love that he has for us and the the love that he has for his creation. And it is making us live at a whole nother level because the life of Jesus is inside of us. Amen. Stand to your feet with me this morning. I'm so long-winded. I apologize. Father, I thank you, Jesus. I love you, God. Thank you for everything you do for us. Thank you for making life available to us. God, thank you for bringing us from death back to life. God, thank you. I thank you and I praise you this morning that you have never given up on your narrative that the life of Jesus would dwell in the hearts of men and women. And God, we are thankful today that that very life of Jesus resides in us today. God, we celebrate that we have overcome because you have come into our hearts and our lives. We love you, Jesus. Right where you are, would you just close your eyes with me? I don't know where you feel on your worship experience. I, I don't, but would you do something? Would you lift a hand? Just right now for a second, would you access the Zoe life of Jesus that is inside of you? Would you just connect with him inside of you through praise? Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we magnify you. Jesus, we honor and glorify you in this place. Lord, we recognize that the life of Jesus resides inside of us. We are the children of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your life. That we don't have to try to live, like Roderick said last night, a godly life without God. We can live this life because you are with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Revealed in us. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Really quickly before we dismiss, I know I've already gone long, but right where you are, can I just encourage you in this? If you'll just close your eyes, it helps me. Maybe not you, but it helps me. Maybe this morning you're just in this place or this afternoon now and you're just empty for whatever reason. Maybe you're like me. I spent a lot of my years chasing after trying to be good enough and my I, I'll tell you I was extremely sincere but it left me empty maybe that's you this morning I'm not going to ask for a show of hands but if I can encourage you in this this is way easier than you think it is God's not looking for a level of a standard in your life he's looking for you it's what he's always been looking for he's not asking for your Excellence. He's not asking for your performance. He's coming to you this morning. It's not about living by rules and standards and regulations and all the things that mankind sets up. Sometimes some of the hardest things, and I feel like the Lord is in this this morning for you. If you've been struggling under the weight of trying to live up to a standard and you've struggled with that, trying to follow and I got to dress this certain way and I've got to there's all these behaviors that I've got to have can I just tell you this this morning there is the the life of God that is waiting to come in and overtake and overwhelm all of those things 
And you can live by the life of Jesus. And let all the restrictions that you feel like have caused you to struggle, let them fall by the wayside and let the life of Jesus begin to flow in your heart. Maybe that's never happened. I'm not talking about being born again. I'm talking about a moment where you say, God, I can't handle this struggle and pressure any longer. I beat myself up. I beat everybody else up. I want your life, Jesus, to flow inside of me. I want the tree of life. Maybe you're here this morning and say, I need, I, I need to stop eating from the tree of knowledge and I need to start feasting on the tree of life. That is available this morning. Make the switch. Make the switch to live by the life of Christ. God, do it. Minister to your people this morning, Lord. I know you love them so much. So committed to them, Lord. Would you let your life flow into them, God? In Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Who, Pastor, you need this? 